Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Zephaniah chapter 1. Often military operations are given code names. So you have Operation Desert Storm or Operation Iraqi Freedom. And it's a designation of a military operation that though it involves warfare, the end game is to provide stability, freedom, liberation. You might call the book of Zephaniah Operation Judgment Day because this prophet speaks about God's coming judgment in some ways more than any other minor prophet. He speaks about the day of the Lord. Now you've heard that phrase before if you've been in any of these studies of the minor prophets. Zephaniah speaks then about Operation Judgment Day, the coming of the day of the Lord. And like a military operation, it's going to have pain. It's going to have an amount of uncertainty and difficulty. But the end game is stability and freedom. So that after the day of the Lord comes the joy of the Lord. And Zephaniah will speak about that end game as well as the judgments in this book. You may want to picture history and biblical history as a train that is moving down the tracks. And the prophets are like the conductors. And they're calling out the next stop as they are looking into the future and they're seeing different events unfold. Some will predict what's coming in Jerusalem. Others predict what's happening over in Nineveh. Others will predict the coming of Christ. This prophet is the conductor that calls out the very last stop. He's the one that calls out, this is the end of the road. It's over after this. Everybody get off. This is the end of the end. As he looks through something that's going to happen in the future immediately for Judah, the southern kingdom. But he uses that to look far into the future of the coming of the day of the Lord. Now I mentioned that the prophets like to use that term. It's more an Old Testament term than a New Testament term. And the prophets used it 26 times altogether. If you were to count up how many times the day of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, you find it appears 26 times. 18 of those times are used by this prophet alone. So that's the theme of this book. The coming of the day of the Lord, or Operation Judgment Day. Now let me give you the outline. If I were to outline this book, I'd cut it into two sections. The future of judgment and the future of Jerusalem. Chapters 1 and 2, the future of judgment. Chapter 3, the future of Jerusalem. And you'll see that change as we get to it. Chapters 1 and 2, I mentioned, are the future of judgment. Chapter 1 is the judgment that's coming upon Judah, that southern kingdom. Chapter 2 is the judgment that is coming on other nations around Judah. Then chapter 3 is the future of Jerusalem. The future judgment and their future glory or future peace. All of that is written in chapters 1 through 3. So then, the themes of this prophet are both judgment, and blessing. And have you noticed how often the prophets combine both of those? It's not one or the other necessarily. Sometimes it's both. And I think the Holy Spirit gave that to these prophets to bring encouragement and comfort. If it was all a book of judgment, the people hearing it would go, well, thank you very little for that prophecy, Zephaniah. You see, he's telling them the bad news, but then to go beyond the bad news to the ultimate end, the future, the good news, would bring encouragement to them. God isn't done with us. He's going to restore us. He'll ultimately bless us. So, judgment and blessing. Or, you might even call this book a severe mercy. Let me tell you a story. 
One night a man was in a young girl's room and he stood over her bed and he looked at her. She was screaming. And as she let out a scream, her mother came into the room and held her tightly. The man that was standing over the bed walked into the next room and got on the telephone and spoke to another man in yet another place. Hung up the phone, went back into the girl's bedroom, quickly took her in his arms, ran downstairs and whisked her away in his car to a very bleak-looking building. She was taken to the top floor into a room with a single overhead light. And there another man stood over her, the man to whom that first man was speaking to on the phone, and he plunged a knife into that young girl's body. Now, in listening to that story, you think, that is so gross. That's cruel. Who would do such a thing? Well, now wait for the details. The man who was in the girl's bedroom and stood over her was the girl's father. He whisked her in the car to that bleak-looking building called a hospital and took her to the up top floor, which was the surgery suite, and the single surgery lamp over her, and the man was the physician who took a scalpel and operated on her appendix to take away her appendix so that she would be healed. You go, oh, I get it now. You made it sound horrible. Well, that's sort of like reading the prophets. You see the surgeon, and he takes out the blade, and you go, what kind of a God would allow that? God who wants to remove the appendix so you won't die. A God who wants to spare your life. A loving God who would allow a severe incident out of His loving mercy. And so, verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. He had a cushy life. The son of Gedaliah the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Now, to me, this is fascinating. Because in one verse, we learn more about this single prophet than all of the other minor prophets combined. Often we don't know much about the minor prophets. Here we know a lot about this guy. We know when he prophesied, and we know who he was related to. We can tell by verse 1 that the prophet Zephaniah had royal blood. He was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah of Judah. So he has royal blood in his veins. More than that, He has a message from God on his lips. Now, do you recall Hezekiah? And Josiah is also mentioned in this verse. Go back a few years in biblical history before this time, and you will remember the name Hezekiah. You'll remember that he was one of the good guys, right? He was one of the guys who decided to bring, at least hope to bring, a certain amount of revival back to Judah. They had strayed from God as so often the people of God in the Old Testament did. One day, the high priest Hilkiah found in the rubble of the temple, it was unkept, he found a book of the law. He dusted it off, gave it to the scribe Shaphan, and that book of the law, the Old Testament, was read in the presence of the king, when the king heard it, Hezekiah, he tore his robes. He realized, boy, in listening to that Bible being read, I realize how far we as a nation have strayed from what we were once founded upon. He commanded the temple to be restored, the worship to be renewed. He commanded all of the high places of idol worship to be destroyed, all of the wooden images and stone images of the false gods and goddesses to be taken out of the land, and even, get this, he took a serpent on a brass pole that was used in the wilderness that by now the people used as a sacred relic. They looked upon it and they prayed to it and they worshipped it, and he busted it up, got rid of it, called it Nehushtan, a thing of brass. 
That was the king Hezekiah. Great, you say. Awesome. Revival. No. Because he died. And after him, his son Manasseh became king, who was, by the way, the worst king of all the kings of Judah. Manasseh brought years and years of sinfulness, wickedness, and idolatry back into Judah. He went even so far as to take his own son, infant son, and burn him to death in worship of the false Phoenician god Molech. After Manasseh, his son Ammon reigned, also a wicked king. After Ammon reigned, Josiah, who's mentioned here, reigned. And as we said last week, he was a good guy. And he brought a certain amount of reform. Probably this prophet Zephaniah gave his message and performed his ministry before the revival of King Josiah. The people are now lapsing back into the same old idolatry, even worse than before Hezekiah brought those reforms. Interesting thing about people. We as people often are content with merely dealing with the outward and not touching the inward. It's just something about being human. You can remove idols from the homes and still have idols in the hearts. People were worshiping false gods and goddesses at this time. Now, there is a modern parallel. Actually, you can look just about anywhere and see this. You can see it in our country. And if you want to know where our country is going, you know, a lot of people ask, well, where are we going as a nation? Look at who we are following. We're just a few years later than the one who came before us and we're following the same path as Europe. Look especially at the United Kingdom, England and Scotland. And think back in recent history to the great reforms of men like John and Charles Wesley, William Wilberforce, the preaching of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the preaching of John Knox, But now go over to England and Scotland and look around today. Eighty-five churches every year are closing in the United Kingdom alone, and most of them are being converted to mosques. While Christianity is declining, Islam is on the rise. If you go through the streets of Bradford, England, you go, oh, look at those lovely churches. Why is there Arabic writing all over them? Because they're no longer churches. They're all mosques. So these people of God, once devoted to the God of Israel, their hearts are turning back to false gods and goddesses, a couple of them that will be mentioned here. Verse 2, I will utterly consume everything. Now this prophet is looking far ahead, and I'm going to describe something in a moment that I think you've already picked up on, hopefully, and that is how the prophets saw. And sometimes they saw double vision. They saw something immediate that was a model for something that was ultimate coming ahead. And this prophet looks far ahead into the future. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. The prophet is looking ahead at what's going to happen to that southern kingdom of Judah, of which Jerusalem is the capital. The Babylonians, they be coming. It's Operation Judgment Day. The day of the Lord is coming. Now, that phrase, I want to just explain to you, the day of the Lord. It's not a 24-hour period it's a extended period of time that simply means man's day is over and God is stepping in to intervene directly in human affairs. And so to describe that action of God, that activity of direct intervention from heaven, it's called the day of the Lord. It can last years. Now, most often that phrase, the day of the Lord, 
is used eschatologically, that is to speak of end times, the very end of days, the full and final judgment upon the earth. But other times it is used non-eschatologically. So let me put it all together for you. What this prophet describes as the day of the Lord is there is coming a day of the Lord for Judah that will be much like the day of the Lord that is coming for the whole world. He sees both in this prophecy. A day and the day. Not D-day, the day. A day that is coming for Judah when the Babylonians come and destroy the land and take them captive. But that is a very small, diminutive model of what will come in the day of the Lord in the future. We also call that the day of wrath, the day of indignation, Jacob's trouble, the tribulation, the great tribulation. That day of the Lord will last seven years. The prophet sees double as we go through this prophecy. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. You've heard of Baal? He's a Assyrian and Babylonian god. And the, the word simply means Lord. And lots of deities were called Baals or Baalim in Hebrew, the masculine plural, Baalim. And it was the chief Canaanite deity who was worshipped. The names of idolatrous priests with pagan priests. Those who worshipped the hosts or the stars of heaven on the housetops. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, who also swear by Milcom or Molech, as I mentioned, the Phoenician god. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Let me give you a little bit of a a little snapshot of what was going on. You could have gone into Jerusalem during this time and gone up to the flat rooftops of the people living in the city and you'd find altars that were built as people would go out on a clear night and worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. An ancient Canaanite practice known as Sabianism. It's as old as mankind. Worshiping the hosts of heaven. Also, some of them were worshiping Molech, as I mentioned. And Molech was often worshipped by, as King Manasseh did, placing an infant baby on the red-hot arms of that idol until the baby died. The screams were drowned out as the baby was placed upon that hot metal object with drums so that people around couldn't hear the screams of the baby, but only the drums for the worship. Now, to make matters worse, it's not just the people were worshiping Molech and worshiping Baal and involved in Sabianism on the rooftops. They would also add to their pantheon of deities Yahweh. They'd say, oh, well, we worship many gods, and we worship the God of Israel as well. So... By doing that, they were placing the only true God down at the same level as all of the false pagan gods and goddesses. And God didn't take a liking to that. And you can see why God would judge. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods besides me. And so the judgment was coming. You worship on the housetops. And verse 6 is really the heart of it. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. What has happened to our nation? You have to ask that when you discover that 40 million Americans consult astrological charts to determine their future. You have to wonder that when you discover there are three times as many astrologers and psychics in America as clergymen. We're following a similar path. So God says this, Be silent, quiet, zip it up in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. 
For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. Now what is, what is he talking about here in verse 7? The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. You know what he's talking about? Judah. Judah, the people of Judah, they're the sacrifice. They're the ones who will be sacrificed. It also says he has invited guests. Those would be the Babylonians. Hey, I'm going to sacrifice Judah, and the Babylonians will be the invited guests who will come in and do the dirty work. Now all of this, the coming judgment, the coming destruction, Operation Judgment Day, all of that is, as we saw in Joel, as we saw in Amos, but a model, you might call it a preview of coming attractions. This is the trailer. The big show's coming up. And to describe that in the past, I've used the illustration of the glasses that I have. I wore contact lenses. One now, over the last few years, it's been changed. Um, because as you age, you lose elasticity in the eye, and you do one of these numbers. So, this eye is focused for stuff up close, this eye for stuff far away. And the brain, over a couple days, can take that and make sense of it. So it's, it's normal for me now. But when I put my glasses on, I have what they call progressive lenses. Don't let the term fool you. It's just a new term for the old bifocals, except there's no line. So if I look toward the bottom of the lens, I can see something really close I can read. But as I look toward the top of the lens, I can see far away, clearly. With progressive lenses, you can see all of the depths of field that you need. When Zephaniah is writing, he's putting on progressive lenses. He's seeing at the bottom the immediate coming judgment upon Judah via the Babylonians 586 B.C. He lifts his eyes further up on the horizon, and this is a template for that. In the same vision, in the same view, he sees the day of the Lord that is even worse than a day of the Lord, the coming judgment that will come upon the entire world. Verse 9. In that same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold. The idea is rushing in to plunder your fellow countrymen. Who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And it shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Machtesh, for the merchant people, all the merchant people are cut down, and those who handle money are cut off. Now we're dealing with Jerusalem here. He just described the ancient topography of Jerusalem. And what the prophet is dealing specifically with is what you would call the money market of ancient Jerusalem. This is Wall Street of ancient Jerusalem. This is the, the business center. Now, let me just describe for you the topography of Judah. I'm holding up three fingers, just in case your vision is like mine. Um, the 21st letter in the Hebrew alphabet is called a shin or a sheen, S-H-I-N. And it looks like a W. It's where you get, when you say shalom, the first letter is this letter, the sheen. The topography of Jerusalem looks just like that. There's three valleys in it. On one side is the Kidron Valley. And that's the valley that separates the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount. It's a very deep ravine. On the other side, that moves opposite to it, but really southwest, is called the Hinnom Valley, Gehenna. It's where the garbage was dumped. That's where we get the term hell from, the Valley of Hinnom. In between those was also another valley, not quite as deep, called the Tyropian Valley, or Machtesh, mentioned here. The Tyropian Valley is where, even today, you see the remnants of ancient Jerusalem where the marketplace is held, 
where there, there was the exchange of goods and money. The fish gate is on the north. And it is also at the top of the Maktesh, top of the marketplace. It's where people from the north would enter in to the city. Whenever Jerusalem was destroyed in ancient times, it was always conquered from the north. The Babylonians would come in through the fish gate, the Damascus gate now today, because the city was most vulnerable on the north. As you can see, there's a valley here, a valley here, and a valley here, and they all connect. It's all valley. The north has no valley. It's pretty flat. So if you want to attack the city, you don't go down the valleys and up the hills. You just go straight across toward the fish gate. That's how the city was destroyed by the Babylonians. So judgment is upon those who were uh, selfishly um, extracting money and stealing money in that marketplace, and judgment would come through that gate. It shall come to pass at that time, verse 12, that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish men who are settled in complacency, who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will He do evil. Notice they're settled in complacency. Now, why do you suppose they would be complacent? You know why? Jerusalem was a walled city. And people often that lived in walled cities trusted the walls for their protection. Ah, we don't have anything to worry about. We have strong stone walls. Nobody will break through and get us. And they became complacent, or as the King James renders it, settled on their lees. An old wine term for the crust that settles in a wine vat because it hasn't been moved around. They became very complacent. I just finished a book called 1453 about the fall of Constantinople in the year 1453. A fascinating book. If you like that kind of history, get it. And here's why. It'll tell you, it'll frame for you the current problem we're facing with radical Islam today. And, and here's the deal. The city of Constantinople had the kind of walls that made the people within it complacent. Nobody could take our city, they said. We're a nation founded by God, they touted. Whoever rules Constantinople rules the free world. This is God's nation, God's country. We can't be destroyed. Well, Bedouin tribes from Saudi Arabia, beginning in the 600s, marched against that ancient city. And every time they did, and they tried to take Constantinople, they couldn't do it. They were unsuccessful. They were defeated. But they kept coming back, and kept coming back, and kept coming back. And they kept coming back for 800 years. That's persistence. When you get beat up for 800 years and you still want to fight again... There's something different going on up here. And we're dealing with that same ideology right now in our world. We need to wake up to that. And these warring tribes from Saudi Arabia said, just wait, they'll become so complacent, was their term, within their walls. And when they become complacent, because we will not let up, we will destroy that. In fact, Constantinople was known by the Muslims back then, as the bone in the throat of Allah. And they wanted to take and crush that bone and get it out of their system. And eventually, they did. And they did it when they were complacent. And the people in Jerusalem were becoming complacent. Ah, no problem. And they said something, not out loud, but in their heart, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the problem. The heart. That's where sin begins. The heart. That's the part that needs to be watched. The heart. Keep your heart with all diligence. Out of it proceed the very issues of life. It's the part that needs to be cleansed. Did you know that scientists tell us that snowflakes, as beautiful as they are, are really crystallized ice over a piece, a particle of dust. What happens is that water vapor that's very cold 
solidifies around a piece of dirt falling from the air. Ice crystallizes, weighs it down, it's snowfall. The point is, every beautiful snowflake has a dirty heart. (laughs) At the heart of every crystallized snowflake is dirt. At the heart of every person is a dirty heart. And that's why we all need to be cleansed. And the only thing that can wash away our sins is nothing but the blood of Jesus. So, are we, should we be complacent in our strong military today? Should we say, we're one nation under God. We're protected by the Lord. Nothing can happen to us. That's exactly what people around the world would like you to say. Love you to be complacent. Love you to not think about them or anything else. They're waiting for that day when that would happen. And who knows? I'm not going to be a prophet to make those predictions. Verse 13. Therefore their goods shall become spoil or booty. Their house is a desolation. They shall build houses and not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty man shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, the day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. So notice the poetry in those verses. That rapid, quick, staccato-like repetition of judgment that is spoken about. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men. You can picture it. Picture somebody blind. He can't see. He's groping around for an exit, an escape, unable to find it. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. In the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured. By the fire of his jealousy, he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. So, the future of judgment for Jerusalem. Now the future of judgment for the nations. That's what chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, is all about. But the first three verses of chapter 2 are still part of the thought of chapter 1. The Bible divisions aren't inspired. The Bible's inspired. But the people who came later on and put chapters and verses, they just put them in there because they thought, that's a good place to end it. Let's call that chapter 2. The original autographs or documents were just one solid literary piece without numbers in them or chapter divisions. So I wouldn't have done that. You know, who am I? I'm not a Bible author, but I would have stopped chapter 1 to chapter 3 of chapter 2. But (laughs) that's the way it is. So what God says in chapter 2, verse 1, is since this is true, here would be a smart thing for you to do. What you ought to do is, as many people as are godly and can think this thing through, is gather together as a group and repent of all this nonsense. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Something about gathering together that gets God's attention. You can pray all by yourself, but something happens when Christians decide, let's meet. And let's pray. Let's seek the Lord as a group. Let's meet for Bible study and worship together. The people of Nineveh, when they repented, it was from the least to the greatest. And they all joined together. And the Lord saw that and stopped the judgment that was coming upon Nineveh under the preaching of Jonah. The idea of the national day of prayer, I love that. Let's get together. Let's ask the Lord together, like this says, to have mercy upon our nation. 
The Lord calls them to come together in fellowship and in repentance. Seek the Lord, verse 3, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now, I didn't tell you this, but you know what the word Zephaniah means? Hidden. Or he hides. God hides is the implication. So I see this as a play on the prophet's name. Seek the Lord, repent in humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And by the way, it is God's style to hide and protect when he judges the earth his children. It doesn't mean we're immune from the tribulation and trials that come of this world. But when God executes His divine intervention in a dramatic way, God always makes a difference. You need to register that because it will make all the difference in the world how you see what's coming ahead and where you stand on the rapture of the church or not. Think back to Egypt. When the judgment came upon Egypt, the firstborn, the hail, all of those plagues... It did not hinder God's own people. God made a difference and protected or kept them hidden. When a flood came upon the earth to destroy the whole world, Noah and his family were lifted off the earth in an ark and preserved from that direct day of the Lord intervention of His judgment. And so the New Testament tells us concerning that very coming of the day of the Lord... For the Lord has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. You say, but wait a minute, Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. Now think through that statement. There's a huge difference between the tribulation that comes from this world, from this fallen world with Satan at its source, big difference from that, to the judgment that God sends and a direct intervention of His day of the Lord. Huge difference. Seek the Lord. Follow Christ. You'll be hidden. And again, here it is. It's called the day of the Lord's anger. Okay. We're going to skip over some verses before we get into chapter 3. I'll, I'll sum them up. But, but, but let me just, again, impress upon you this theme that we've been mentioning all night. The day of the Lord. Did you know that there are few prophecies, few events that are as detailed in the Bible as the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord, the coming judgment of God at the end of times, is extremely detailed. In fact, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, all the way through chapter 19... That's the theme, the day of the Lord. It's the detailed judgments that's coming in the great tribulation. So Jesus the Lamb takes the scroll, and there are seven seals, and every time a seal is peeled off, that seal ushers a brand new judgment upon the earth. There are seven of them. The seventh seal, once that's ripped off the scroll, that seventh seal ushers in seven more judgments called trumpet judgments. And God's angels blow a trumpet, and with each blow of the trumpet, another judgment falls upon the earth. And it's detailed in that book. There are seven of those. And at the end of that trumpet judgments, the last trumpet is blown. That ushers in seven bowls of judgment that are poured upon the earth. And as the book goes on, these judgments seem to be worse and more compressed. That is, they happen sequentially one right after another. And that final bowl is the final fury of the wrath of God. When that's poured out, there is no more judgment. But chapters 6 through 19 deal with the kind of devastation of which this is just a little tiny example of with Babylon and Judah. For instance, you want to know how bad it's going to get? There's seven seals that are peeled off of that scroll that I mentioned. The fourth seal, when it is broken, one 
fourth of the entire earth's population is destroyed in a single judgment. Do the math. When you get to the sixth trumpet judgment, a third of those remaining upon the earth are also destroyed. So conceivably, one half of the current population of the earth could be destroyed just with those two judgments. By the time you get to the sixth bowl judgment, the mountains, the islands are flattened and hailstones come out of heaven weighing 125 pounds apiece. Imagine those big blocks of ice that you get or used to get in the ice coolers careening out of heaven, hitting things on the earth. That is the day of the Lord. And that's why Jesus said there's coming a day that this world has never seen. It will be far worse than everything that has come before it up till that time. You can take the Holocaust. You can take World War II. You can take what happened in Iraq, what might happen in Iran. The world has never seen what's coming in that future day of the Lord. Okay. Now, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, all the way down, is a list of nations. I'm going to sum it up for you. There are nations that are mentioned in this chapter, God's judgment upon them, and these are nations around Judah. He begins in the west, and he moves to four different directions, representing the nations that are all around Israel. Now, these nations at one time, were the very instruments, the very rods God used to punish or to judge his people Judah. But now God says, I'm going to in turn judge them for touching you, the apple of my eye. So just like Habakkuk last week said, why would you use a a nation more wicked than we are? God says, don't worry, I got plans for that. I got that covered. So verse 4, for Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon desolate, etc. That's, that's west of Judah. Verse 8, I have heard the reproach of Moab, that's east of Judah, and the insults of the people of Ammon, that's modern-day Jordan. Now, you know that Moab was a, a descendant of Lot because of an incestuous relationship. And a little piece of divine humor is in Psalm 108, when God says, Moab is my wash pot, or my garbage can. So God has plans to judge that. Verse 12, you Ethiopians, now he's going south of Judah. Also, you shall be slain by my sword, and they were by the Babylonians. And then verse 13, we go north. He will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation. 612 B.C., that prophecy was fulfilled. So all of these nations are mentioned in the rest of chapter 2. Now we get to chapter 3. Oh, by the way, each one of these nations mentioned that God says, I'm going to judge, there was a time when they thought, I am something great. Watch my star rise. Watch how wonderful I am. They all thought they were something great. God said, I'm going to show you how great you aren't. And here's why. All of these nations had one thing in common. You know what it was? Their desire to exterminate the Jews. Their desire to not just hurt, but to eliminate Israel. They are no more. Whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. If you look at all of the nations historically that have dealt Israel a foul blow and look at their history, it's not very pleasant. Egypt, you could just go down the list. So you've got a guy over in Iran tonight, the leader of that country, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who said, we will wipe Israel off the face of the earth. He said it several times. 
He's being armed with nuclear weapons to do exactly that. Now, for the life of me, I don't know why certain politicians in our country don't believe that he intends to do that. He said he's going to do it. He says he has a religious belief that allows him to do that. And I'm going to arm myself nuclear with nuclear weapons in order to do that. I'm going to wipe Israel off the face of the map. But Israel, he said, is the little Satan. The United States is the great Satan. I'm not after just Israel. I'm after you. You're the new Constantinople. We're coming to get you. So you have a lot of these politicians saying, Oh, well, we've got high walls. We have nothing to worry about. There's just a few people that believe. There's not many people. Wake up and smell the Turkish coffee. Okay, chapter 3. We'll finish up. We have 10 minutes. If chapters 1 and 2 deal with the future of judgment, this deals with the future of Jerusalem in both judgment and blessing. Woe, and you know in Hebrew it's oi, to her who is rebellious and polluted the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. He's speaking of Jerusalem. Why would God give this kind of an utterance to Jerusalem after dealing with the nations that oppressed her? Because to whom much has been given, much is required. The greater blessing requires greater responsibility. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. These are the politicians. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets, now the spiritual leaders, are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Therefore, therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to assemble or to my assembly of kingdoms to pour out on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, and the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Now, in, beginning in verse 8 is a transition from Jerusalem, Babylon, Gaza, all this stuff, to the far future day of the Lord, the ultimate, the day of the Lord that is coming in the, in the tribulation period. Now, what we just read, we know when that is. And we know who it is who's going to do it. His name is Jesus and it happens at the end of the tribulation. Let me just read it to you. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down or mark it down. If you've got a fast thumb, you can turn to it instantly. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Once again, a chapter over, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. When Jesus Christ comes the second time, He's going to be a very different Jesus than He was the first time. He's not coming as a lamb. He's coming as the lion. He's not coming with tears weeping over Jerusalem. He's coming with a flashing eyes of fiery judgment. He's not coming with a crown of thorns. He's coming with many crowns, Revelation 19. He's not coming bloodied by his enemies. He's coming with the blood of his enemies on his garment, whom he destroys. Again, Revelation 19. That's the ultimate end of the day of the Lord. Okay. 
Zephaniah 3, 9. For then, get this, I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. Now, I've been puzzled by this verse, to be frank with you, and I've noticed that many commentators will say this probably refers to pure speech, purified speech. That is, all of the kind of bad, evil things that people will say will be taken away because it indicates a spiritual transformation. Thus, you drop all of the bad language that you used to speak and your language is purified. Still other scholars, and I tend to lean to this because of the context, is a prophecy of a restored Hebrew language. I want you to just listen to something from Encyclopedia Britannica from 1911, speaking about the Hebrew language in Israel. Now listen to this. This is Encyclopedia Britannica. Quote, The possibility that we can ever again recover the correct pronunciation of ancient Hebrew is as remote as the possibility that a Jewish empire will ever again be established in the Middle East. Boy, were they wrong on two counts. 1948, Israel became a nation in the Middle East. And David Ben-Gurion declared that Hebrew would be revived, restored, and reused in the borders. So that although there are some technical differences between ancient and modern Hebrew, my point is this. The prophet Zephaniah could walk down the streets of Tel Aviv today and read a menu. That's how revived it is. He could understand the words just like a modern Israeli can read and understand ancient Hebrew. To serve him with one accord from the borders of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my despised one, shall bring my offering. And that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds which you transgress against me. Then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride. You shall no longer be haughty. In my holy mountain I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies. Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. So, listen how good it is now. Sing, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. When will that happen? That will happen after verse 8 happens. After the judgment on the nations, then for 1,000 years, Jesus Christ, the King, will dwell in the midst of His people from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And as I said, that's for 1,000 years. The presence of God dwelling among His people from Mount Zion in the millennium, in a restored earth. Some of you may remember in the book of Ezekiel, beginning in verse 8, 8 through 11, Ezekiel sees the presence of God, the glory of God, depart. And it goes in phases. This Shekinah cloud moves from the temple, moves eastward toward the Golden Gate, then toward past the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and toward the Dead Sea region, and it vanishes incrementally. He sees it leave. The glory departs. This is that in reverse. The glory comes back. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ. God dwells in their midst via the King. That's King Jesus. And that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. 
Now, I love that in the old King James. In fact, it used to be a song we used to sing. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. It's a great verse to commit to memory. It's a great song to sing. Maybe we'll have Donovan close with that song. Though he may not know it, so (laughs) we'll have to teach it to him. But look at that. You know what that tells me, that verse? God delights in His people. God delights in you. When you get up in the morning, don't picture God as doing this. It's you again. What do you want? Go away, kid. You bother me. You've got the wrong picture. God delights in us. God loves us. Like a bridegroom delights in his bride. The Lord, when you just say in the morning, Lord, he's like, he's on it. Yeah. I heard somebody say, you know, I've been praying more that I've gone through this deep valley of affliction than ever before. Uh, Newsflash. Why are you waiting for the deep valley of desolation to call upon the name of the Lord? Could it be that the Lord allowed it to come in your life? Because He hasn't heard from you lately. (laughs) Abide in Him. Enjoy Him. He delights in you. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all those who afflict you. I will save the lame, gather those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back. Even at that time, now watch this, I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the people of the earth, When I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Do you see that? Do you see that promise? I will gather you, give you fame and praise. You know why that's there? Because that's exactly what God promised way back in Deuteronomy chapter 26. Listen to this. The Lord has proclaimed that you are a special people as He promised to you. You should keep all of His commandments, and He will set you high above all nations, which He has made in praise and name and honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as He has spoken. God promises to beautify Israel and to make them the chief nation. That will happen in the millennium. Before He can beautify them, He has to purify them. Thus, Operation Judgment Day. Purification and then glorification. What God does with Israel, in part, He does with us. You've heard it said, God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to leave you the way you are. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God is growing you through all the good and the bad times? stretching you, we're learning about Him, and we're getting fit for eternity. Heavenly Father, thank You that You have a plan for us. You have a plan for our enemies. We can leave them in Your hands. We can love our enemies. We can bless them and not curse. And Lord, just to know that You love us and You delight in us is a privilege. Lord, ready us for any day that comes. Whether it's a day or the day, I pray our eyes will always be fixed upon you so that every day becomes an opportunity to fellowship and to enjoy you. That's why you made us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. 
If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.